Hi, it's Radhika Jones, Editor-in-Chief of Vanity Fair. If you enjoy binge-watching the best TV shows and love hearing from the actors and showrunners who make them happen, then subscribe to Vanity Fair. Our Hollywood reporters take you behind the scenes of the year's most anticipated projects, the industry's biggest moves, and the hardest-fought awards races. From The Crown to The Real Housewives, we've got the inside scoop. As a special thank you to our still-watching audience, we're offering 15% off a yearly digital subscription to Vanity Fair. Visit VanityFair.com today and use promo code POD15. That's VanityFair.com, promo code POD15, for 15% off a yearly digital subscription to everything you want. What do you watch, Ethan? Ah, uh, what do we watch? Like documentaries? Ted Lasso, sometimes. Oh, love, love Ted, Ted Lasso. Lasso. Oh, you like it? Yeah, yes, man. of course. So likable, right? Yeah. I don't watch Ted Lasso. I love no? it. Yeah. yeah, such a good guy. Yeah. So much content now. It's like there's billions of shows. Everyone's trying to keep up. It's, it's kind of suffocating, much. honestly. Yeah. It's too much. It's like Whatever. we're all entertaining each other while the world burns, right? We're all just zombies, you know, like, oh. Mm. Hello, and welcome to Still Watching, a weekly television recap podcast from Vanity Fair. I'm Richard Lawson, and I'm so excited this season of Still Watching to be talking about a darkly comic, comically dark, sexy, sad, scary HBO show, The White Lotus, um, which had its first season in 2021. It won a bunch of Emmys, got rave reviews from critics like me, and wasn't necessarily going to have a second season because it was kind of built as a miniseries, a one-off. But it was such a sleeper success that HBO gave Mike White, the writer-director, the go-ahead, and now he's back for season two with mostly a new cast plus one holdover from the first season. So yes, we're going to be talking about White Lotus season two on this podcast. Every week we'll be talking about the, you know, an episode of the show. We will have theories. We'll hear from you guys, hopefully, in the audience. And we'll just kind of break down a show that is really fun to break down because there's so much going on in it. We'll have interviews with cast members, various uh, people from the cast and creative team. Uh, This week, uh, later in this episode, we'll have a chat with Will Sharp, who plays Ethan on the show. You know, this season, I think, feels arguably a little darker than the first. Um, Its focus is to do with relationships, I think, and Mike's kind of diving headfirst into all of the messiest, like gnarliest aspects of, of love. As you listen, and if you have any thoughts or theories or questions, um, you can get in touch with us uh, at Still Watching. We're at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Um, and then throughout this season of the podcast, we'll kind of try to answer some of the questions or address some of your concerns, criticisms even. We welcome <laughs> those. Um, and to do all that, it's my great pleasure to be joined by one of my esteemed Vanity Fair colleagues, and that's Chris Murphy, who, who writes about entertainment and popular culture for us at VF. Hi, Chris. Hi, Richard. I'm so happy to be going on this journey with you. I take it you're a big uh, big White Lotus fan? I am. Yeah. I am a huge White Lotus fan. Uh, I think the show is, you sort of really captured it. It's so many things at once. 
It's dark. It's funny. It's satire. It's escapism. It's it's sexy. It's it's it sort of envelops so many things in culture and so many things that I love about TV. All the while giving incredible actors and actresses just so much meat to play with. They just get to have the time of their lives in these beautiful uh, vacation venues and really have like an acting feast, which I. Big lover of actresses, a big lover of Jennifer Coolidge, getting to see her sort of, you know, chew the scenery. What's not to love? So I'm a big fan. I think one of the best things about season one is that people didn't really see it coming. Like, I feel like HBO didn't even market it that much. I swear I did not know it existed until like two episodes into the series. Yeah, I started watching screeners and then like by episode three, I was like, wait, is this brilliant? (laughs) (laughs) And and then everyone else agreed. So it was really exciting. Um. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, I and the fact, too, that it was made, the first season was made like sort of in the pandemic. It was like a pandemic project and sort of was set, you know, all at one hotel. And it was able to be uh, just so, uh, so well acted. So touch on so many different topics from race to class to privilege to money to murder to queer themes, I, yeah, I think Mike White, he knows what he's doing and I'm yeah. excited to go on the journey with him again. Yeah. So for those not aware, The White Lotus was supposed to be a miniseries. It's now just a regular series with one recurring character. <laughs> um, but it's set typically, well, these two seasons are set at very fancy resorts. Uh, yeah. The first season was in Hawaii and this time we're in beautiful Taramina, Sicily. Yes. Um, which adds a kind of a fun Euro flair. And the premise is essentially that it all takes place over one week. And so each episode is roughly a day in the lives of various hotel guests. Usually they're kind of in little narrative pods that sometimes overlap, but um, in this season um, don't really do that. Well, this first episode, at least, we don't really see much of that. But And then there are the hotel employees, um, famously Murray Bartlett last season. And this season we have a new kind of stern Italian (laughs) hotel manager. Sort of the anti-Armand, if you will, in Valentina. Yeah, Uh, yes, exactly. Um, And she's played by the wonderful, wonderfully named Sabrina Impacciatore, (laughs) I believe her name is. Please forgive if we... uh, (laughs) <laughs> keep um, butchering Italian, Italian names. Italian names, yes. I took Italian for uh, two semesters in college and was not very good at it. I think I said Nolo Sol. I don't know most of the time, but we'll do our best with the Italian I, t- I also name. took Italian, um, and yet I was even in Sicily this summer. <laughs> God, we're so qualified to do this podcast. And I would try to speak Italian, and then the hotel people would be like, in like perfect English, be like, sir, what do you need? <laughs> like, like, like they really, Let's not play this yeah, game. <laughs> yeah. Um, so... The season, last season opened at an airport and where we found out that someone was dead and then it jumped back in time. And this season we have a similar thing where um, a character, uh, Daphne, played by Megan Faye from The The Bold Bold Type, type, right? Um, She's swimming uh, in the, the beautiful ocean on her last day of her trip and then she bumps into a body. Have you guys been here before? No. The hotel's perfect and the staff is excellent. The food is amazing. I've heard. And the wine, I mean. We are so excited. Italy's just so romantic. Oh, you're gonna die. We're gonna have to drag you out of here. (laughs) Oh, I'm sure. Well, I'm gonna get in the water one last time. But you guys are gonna have such an amazing trip. Thank you. It was nice to meet you. You too. Safe travels. Thanks. Bye. Bye. 
So we want to hear something funny, trivia bit about that opening scene. Mm-hmm. The two women that she's talking to um, were on Survivor with Mike White. No way. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. He became like really close with them. And I believe one of them also pops up in the first season, but I could be wrong about that. That's but, yeah. absolutely fantastic. So it's like his two Survivor girlies. He's like, hey, you want to come to Sicily and film a scene <laughs> on the beach and then you can have like a free vacation. That's called paying it forward. That that right? I that I love to right. see. Exactly. You screw them over on the island and then later you're like, hey, come on to set. Um, what a smart player. <laughs> Um, you know, there were a lot of expectations, I think, for the season. And sometimes yeah. second acts, like sophomore seasons, whatever, are sort really of the hard. slump is what yeah, it's exactly. sort of famously called. So do you think it's slumped? I, I don't. I, I think we're trying to do something different this season than what happened last season in terms of, sort of taking us to Hawaii and sort of interrogating race and class from sort of an, uh, an indigenous society and what does sort of... Um, privilege and hyperprivilege in terms of the hotel chain, like that doesn't seem to be necessarily the conflict here. And I right. think that's, which makes sense because we're in Italy, which is, a, you know, a completely, it's a completely different environment than um, Hawaii. So I, I sort of had to like retrain my brain, be like, okay, we're not going to just tell the same sort of story again right. for a second season. That's not what we want. Um, and I do feel that over the course of the first episode, which again, pilots are always tricky. You have to do a lot of exposition. You have to get a lot of, you know, we're, Getting introduced to you know ten brand right. new characters, but can't we just sort of go through and sort of talk about the uh, the new dynamics at play? I think that for season two, in this sort of exploration of sort of privilege and sex and romance and relationships, I do feel like we're moving into really fertile, really interesting territory. So a little bit of a slow burn. It took me like definitely a little bit at the beginning to sort of recontextualize why we're here and what we're doing at this resort. But by the end of the episode, Specifically with Michael Imperioli, I was like, okay, we've got we've got something here. We've got yeah, yeah. I mean, I think you know he Mike White follows a lot of the same template of the first season, where it's like mm-hmm. the, the the thing, then the jump back in time, and then you're on a boat, and you kind of are starting to meet. And and at first, you're like, well, he's just repeating, but yeah. that's kind of necessary, I think, because we're dealing with these different groups of characters, and we also, I think kind of want to feel like we're arriving with them you know it's like you know the fire island ferry that anticipation absolutely we're Um, all on this trip together we're all on the boat together and we're getting off (laughs) right right exactly um so yeah and i think i think that you know the first season was so much about colonial politics in hawaii or the legacy of those Mm -hmm. politics and the implications and the fallout of that yeah and the blythe rich and this is certainly about the blythe rich as well but it doesn't feel based on this first episode um that we're going to get into quite so much like political stuff. maybe. Yeah. Like it's maybe this one is more about like gender wars and sex and all that kind of stuff. And, and um, which is fine, which you is know. fine. I'm hopeful. I, well, I hope that the reason why we're not doing that is because that was sort of the conception of the show and not because like the discourse surrounding, you know, the colonization, uh, you know, and, and those sort of topics that came up last season dissuaded Mike White from approaching that again because I think you know there is a lot you know a lot of differing sides on that but I do think he he gave us a lot to talk about and there was you know there he had he made some really salient points about that but again we're in Sicily you know it's pasta it's it's wine it's Roman there's a there's a completely different vibe I would say there is yeah I mean I suppose he could have like done something about like the refugee crisis in Italy or something yeah. but at the same time that does that really white bl- lotus right right exactly that that might be 
maybe he's not best equipped yeah. to, to to deal with that. Um, and, and sometimes staying in your lane can be a really wonderful thing and a yeah. really great thing. But I mean, there's so many. I mean, even from I love sort of what you just said about the the fairy onto into White Lotus, sort of introducing us all to this new band of characters and sort of having our our you know our anchor Tanya McCourt, <laughs> yeah, our Jennifer yeah. Coolidge, sort of anchor us and. Uh, uh, keep us, you know, uh, sort of together on this journey as we meet all these new characters. Which I would love yep. to get your thoughts on who, who popped. What, what do you, what, what did you feel about the dynamics of these new characters? Well, I think we should first talk about the old character. Ah. Uh, I mean, no, she's not that old. <laughs> uh, Tanya, played by Jennifer Coolidge, an Emmy winner. Yes, really. A, I mean, she's been around forever. She's had some great standout roles in things like Best in Show and Legally Blonde. Mm. But this feels very significant for her like it's because she's being funny but it's also a bit of dramatic acting and I guess my question going into the first uh, episode of the season and I wonder if you felt the same way is is uh, does a little of her go a long way in that like do we really need do we need more of Tanya because she's such an outsized character do you think she still feels like a human in this first episode in the first episode I will say I was a little, I was a little bit like, oh, of all the characters, I mean, again, Jennifer Coolidge is so wonderful and she's such a fantastic actor. She wasn't necessarily the character that I would want the story to continue from the first season. If just from a clear, from a character perspective, Um, it, I did also feel like, have we run as far as we can with, you know, Tanya's sort of hysterics and her antics and whatnot. Um, But I, I gotta say, going back to like sort of her performance, the way that she's able to like color a line, even if it's about macaroons, or yeah, <laughs> yeah. I'm like, oh, uh, she is a presence that like I will always appreciate on screen. And I do feel like there is more to her story, given her relationship with her um, with Greg, her new husband. Some of you who watched White Lotus season one will remember Greg, played by John Grease, because that is the man that Tanya meets sort of towards the end of the season and then they fall in love despite all of her quirks and her <laughs> absurdities. Um, and it turns out, as we learn in season two, end up getting married. So Tanya is on her trip to the White Lotus with her new husband, Greg, um, and with Portia, her uh, assistant, who nobody wants there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I just don't know what the big deal is. I mean, I don't know why you're so bothered. Because I said no. Because it's supposed to be romantic. Because it's a vacation in Sicily for us. I mean, it's not like she's like gonna be in our bed and stuff, you know? I mean, she has her own room. Tanya, get rid of her. All right, I'll get rid of her. I'll get rid of her, all right? Put her on a plane. Hey. Um. You're going to have to get lost. I was definitely, I was skeptical of, okay, is this going to be diminishing returns from her? And I do think that, like, at the at least the beginning of the first episode, we don't know exactly why. I didn't really feel like, oh, I'm so happy that Tanya is back with us. Right. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's a fine line with her where, you know, once in a while a joke like when when Greg like goes to the bathroom, he's like, I'm going to wash up. I have swamp crotch. And she says, he's always thinking of me like that's funny. But I yeah. think it's good that White is restrained and not giving her one of those lines every scene. Yes. You know? Yeah. Um, I do hope that with her arc this season, I don't know where she's headed, but. The Greg of it all gives me concern. You know, mm-hmm. he's in the bathroom talking to maybe someone at work, but who knows who he's talking to. 
and he's being kind of mean to her about the macarons and like the her weight and stuff. Yes, I kind of hope that it's not just a the expected like oh he turns out to be just after her money and yeah. he's a jerk. Like I hope that there's a, a twist there in store. Yeah, I, I also hope that it's not Occam's Razor where it's like you know the right. simplest answer is you know yeah. he just like doesn't love her and she's you know and we learn that she is you know half a billionaire yeah you know so we have a little bit more context about her money um this season which is kind of fun and I yeah I don't necessarily want to see you know just the same sort of shades of like Jennifer Coolidge you know and this character you know uh, needing companionship which mm-hmm. is that's such a deep thing for her and it is such a you know a, d- a topic that you can really dive into, but I do want to see, you know, some new colors from her, which is what the first season gave us, you yeah. know, with her. She's changed, I think, by by the, the her experience of the first season. I mean, she's married now mm-hmm. to someone she met at the White Lotus in Hawaii. Um, and uh, yeah, I think I think my hope is that we'll get sort of new facets yeah. of Tanya. Um, Did you expect Greg to sort of be... No. Kind of an asshole after the first season. <laughs> oh, yeah. I mean, I kind of assumed because it's Mike White and he, yeah. I think more in his early career, he could be kind of like almost nihilistic, like mm. kind of mean to his characters, <laughs> I guess. Yeah. And I think over the years between this and Enlightened and, you know, some other stuff, he's he's softened a little. Yeah. Um, and I think he does love Tanya. And he, I mean, obviously he loves Jennifer Coolidge. Um, they're, they, it's weird that they hadn't worked together before. Yes, that is actually yeah. completely bizarre. Um, but now we have as a kind of a ballast to Tanya's crazy energy is the relatively more normal Portia, her yes. assistant played by Haley Lou Richardson, who's a great young actor. People should see The Edge of Seventeen. Oh yeah. She's been in, she was a Disney girl yeah. too growing up. Oh, was she really? I, yeah, that, yeah. Oh. Um and was she on Survivor? <laughs> I mean at this point who was it? Um yep. yeah, it's it's great to sort of have someone like who's grounded in reality to sort of play off Tanya and and to play off Jennifer uh Coolidge in that way. And I I I really empathized with I've had some Crazy bosses in mm-hmm. the past, and work right. for some. I work for some women who are very similar to Tanya, actually. Okay. Well, you are from the theater, <laughs> so is, exa- oh yeah, you know there are a lot of big, char- big yeah. characters yeah. in that. Just say Patty Lapone. It's okay. <laughs> She's not an actor anymore. She said she quit. She did. She she, she gave her she got, gave away her equity card. Um, but I'm used to sort of it was it's it was very fun, and I think it, uh, I'm very curious to see how this sort of you know more grounded you know, younger, potentially maybe a little lost uh, character of Portia plays off of Jennifer Coolidge and Tanya and deals with her antics. And, you know, one second she's, I will say the one thing that was (laughs) that I didn't buy in the first season, just given that we're after the pandemic is when Tanya sends uh, Portia away because her husband, Greg, doesn't want the assistant on the trip, Mm -hmm. but says you can't go too far because Tanya needs her. Yeah. And so then they're at the hotel restaurant together and Haley Richards, Haley Lou Richardson's Porsche has to hide behind a big uh, menu, Mm -hmm. which in the days of QR codes, that wouldn't happen anymore. (laughs) Fair point. Although, I don't know, maybe the White Lotus is too fancy for QR codes. I would hope so. I would hope so. Yeah. She's also, um, Porsche's complaining about being stuck in the room and it's like, I think your room's probably pretty nice. (laughs) Like, it's not the worst thing. (laughs) It's not a day's in here. Yeah. 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 But she seems to be dealing with some bigger issues than having a difficult boss. Like, we see her by the pool, um talking to a friend on the phone and she's yes complaining about tanya but she's also talking about 
maybe losing her mind a little bit during quarantine, yeah, which, during you know, COVID. we can relate to. But also just it feels like there's something else going on with her, like some kind of mental shift or collapse or something that I'm curious to see kind of sussed out. Yes, that we set this sort of the stage for. But again, you know, we've got six more episodes to go. So, yeah, yeah, so we've got a slow burn. Still watching? We'll be back in just a moment. I'm Claire Fallon. And I'm Emma Gray. We're culture writers, podcasters, and hosts of the show Love to See It. Every week, we give an unapologetically feminist dissection of reality dating shows, rom-coms, and other romance narratives. We unpack all the weird messages they send us about love, sex, and dating. And we dive into all the details with special guests like actors, authors, and cultural critics. You can find Love to See It wherever you get your podcasts. New episodes drop every Tuesday. Facciamo una cosa tre. Um, I'm very curious what Lucia and Mia are going to be doing this season. Um, it kind, it's it, it's like, are they going to be like the Rosencrantz and Guildenstern? Like, are they going to be kind of like Zelig-like figures who just kind of pass through these people's lives? Or, or are they going to kind of start to instigate their own action? And I will say, given what we talked about earlier in terms of season one being, uh, you know, taking us outside of the hotel and introducing introducing us to, you know, characters who work at the hotel. I love yeah. that we have these two characters to sort of ground us in actual Italy and sort mm-hmm. of these local characters to sort of that provide, you know, a complete class distinction. I mean, we we see Lucia being like, I'd love to go to Hollywood. You know, yeah. I, 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 want, I would love to go to Hollywood. And she's clearly a working girl. She's a sex worker. She does not have access to this hotel. I mean, her relationship with Valentina, woo, it's a little, it's a little, it's a little fraught yeah. from the jump. Yeah. Um, and so... Even though we might not be getting with season two of White Lotus as sweeping of a commentary on uh, class and as we might have been getting in season one, we're still in conversation there. Oh, yeah, for sure. And I think that, you know, we can we can watch the show, even if it's never plainly stated on the show, like we we can watch it um, with the knowledge that like. Sicily is very poor. You know, there are pockets of it like Taramina, other tourist towns that like have these lovely things, these expensive things. Um, but the majority of the island is, I think, among the poorest parts of Italy. So mm. so like it would seem that Mia and Lucia are from more of that, you know. Yes. And so the first season was so I think but at the end was so powerful in the way that it kind of illustrated how disposable um, yeah. You know, service workers are and the other first people. episode of the first season. You know, we follow this one woman right. who gives the baby, then she completely disappears. Exactly. Right? Yeah. So we don't yeah. have that yeah. device here, but that's such a great. I mean, that's, that's such a. He can't of repeat that. that. You know, I think <laughs> yeah, that's the no, thing. You it would be like, we're just going to do the same thing, but in Italy. So it's interesting watching what he not. I mean, maybe kind of edits out like or uh, of mm-hmm. the template, you know, and what he's kind of add in. I think this episode when I first watched it didn't quite grab me as much as I hoped because I think he hasn't added everything in yet. Yes, yes. There's more uh, ingredients to be added into the stew, and that definitely makes sense. But I do think Mia and uh, Lucia will be, you know, are going to be key ingredients. Yeah. Uh, Money is also a big topic for four other characters. Um, my goodness. We have uh, Harper and Ethan, Aubrey Plaza, and Will Sharp. Uh, Ethan is some kind of tech guy yeah who has just sold a company and is now rich tech big shot yeah 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 um but not um 
not like swaggering around. Like he's not that kind of guy. He, yeah. He doesn't seem like a Silicon Valley bros we read about yeah. too often. Yes. No, that's definitely more of a Cameron vibe. <laughs> right. <laughs> more of his, more of the Theo James character who is a finance guy. Um, he is uh, very, very confident, very sort of frat boy energy, very much, yeah, very much, they're very much diametrically opposed in that way. And we learn that they're uh, friends because they were roommates in college, Yeah, you know? And yeah. he even says, like, we weren't even friends, we were roommates. And that's right, we what, got put together. Yes. Like, yeah. It wasn't by choice, it was sort of by fate. Yeah, and and for some reason, Cameron and uh, Daphne, who we mentioned earlier, uh, who is his wife, they've in- invited uh, Ethan and Harper on this trip for mysterious reasons. Yes. Maybe just to hang out, maybe because they're now part of the wealthy class. Well, it's very clear that they're definitely not friends. <laughs> no, 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 no. And in fact, they, when in private, Cameron and Daphne kind of, well, more Cameron kind of talk shit about Harper, yes. who is a little uptight, a little uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but also in the complicated way that Mike White writes characters, she's right about a lot. Oh, 100%. You know? Um, and so we sort of, I, we sort of get these two couples, one that's, uh, seems maybe less happy, but with each other, but more culturally aware and one that is blissfully ignorant, if you will. Right. Well, yeah. I mean, that's the thing of that blissful part of that is like when Daphne says to Harper kindly, oh no, the world's not going to end. I kind of was, I, I was like, oh good. (laughs) You know, like I felt (laughs) like comforted by her sentiment, even though she has no idea what she's talking about. Yes. She doesn't read or, or follow the news or anything like that. Um, I'm really curious what this foursome is going to get up to because yeah. you could see the obvious possibilities in um, Harper and Cameron go up to Harper's room. Yeah, she, she's like, getting sun's uh, tan lotion. He's getting a bathing suit because his luggage was lost because they made the mistake of not flying through Munich, <laughs> as, uh, as, Valentina <laughs> as Valentina says. Shrewdly pointed out. Um, and he gets naked in front of her. And yeah. I think can we he, talk about that? Yeah, we have well, to. We have well, to talk. Right. <laughs> um, he knows she can see him, right? Yes. Yeah. I I have to. I I got one. I got to shout out bisexual king Mike Wyatt for right filming it in such a really sort of a erotic and sort of sultry way. Mm-hmm. Where he, I mean, from my you know, we're only one episode in, and we don't know too much about these characters yet. But he seems to be the type of alpha male guy who who wants to be seen who right. and wants to attract um attention from many women not only his wife well he knows he's good looking yes he knows yeah. he's rich um it sounds like he's always been kind of an asshole yes um you know he's at dinner calling ethan the original incel he's making fun of his sexual prowess but at the same time he's being kind of flirty with ethan he's yeah. like you're a good looking guy i would do you you know all this stuff and you're just like I, yeah, I think that he's just like, I, I kind of need everyone to be attracted to yeah. Um But yeah, I think the obvious storyline would be Harper and Cameron have some sort of affair. Maybe that is what's going to happen. Maybe that is, but maybe. But I kind of feel like Mike White is going to bob instead of weave. I don't know. I do. Yes. I, I, he probably will bob instead of weave. But I do also love sort of like the the meta narrative, the story about the Moore, the Moore's head, right? right. So they sort of set that up, right. you know. In terms of uh, the it's a vase, it's like a sculpture yeah. of a. You, and they really are everywhere in They're, Sicily. Uh, really? Uh, okay, yeah. I've never been. There. Yeah. Are they really uh, everywhere? Like every gift shop, like every restaurant, like they are a very, very visible like sign of Sicily. Yeah, I'm like, okay, this is definitely at play in amongst the, like the dynamic 
of these two couples' relationships. And I wonder how that's actually going to go. Because I don't want to, I also don't want to discount um, Megan Faye's Daphne. I think she's, you know, even though she's sort of, uh, in a, you know, in a little mm-hmm. ditzy maybe, I think she might be shrewder and more calculated than we, yeah. than we might give her credit for from this first episode. And who knows, maybe her on the beach in the little prologue was all an act. Yeah, maybe yeah. maybe she knows she had a terrible trip. Aubrey Plaza's performance in this first episode is it's so it's it's sort of sending up you know the way that we've been sort of taught to think about her in Parks and Rec as sort yeah. of this sort of like more dour, more serious person, kind of monotone, yeah, kind of monotone. But there are so many more shades of sort of insecurity, and you can see her sort of overthinking everything and trying her best to sort of well, not even trying her best, but like knowing that she doesn't want to connect with these people and, and sort of be in the situation and l- vaguely fighting through it. Yeah. Um, and realizing, I mean, there are a second dinner scene when she tells Ethan not to order the white fish and is intensely controlling and is, you know, to the point where, like, the other couple is snickering at her. I thought it was so interesting and so true to the actual, you know, couple dynamics where she actually clocked that and walked it back and was like, I'm being crazy right now. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. She's she's in dialogue with herself. She yes. she knows that she can be a little rigid or whatever. Something that I wanted to make sure we talked about was a scene between Harper and Ethan after that dinner. And they're mm-hmm. in bed doing a kind of postmortem of the day or the evening. And they're of course talking about Cameron and Daphne. And they mention the fact that Harper is at least part Puerto Rican. Yeah. Yeah. And that Ethan is um well the actor Will Sharp is half Japanese. They they see that as definitely an othering factor in this relationship. Thanks for making more of an effort. I mean, yeah, they kind of live in a bubble, but they're fun, right? They don't vote, Ethan. I know, what the fuck? They don't read the news. They don't read. It's like, what do they even talk about? Is that what happens when you're rich for too long, your brain just atrophies? <laughs> I mean, they seem happy. No way. It's a front. It's good to have, you know, diverse friends, I guess. Yeah, I think we're their diverse friends. They're white passing diverse friends. Yeah, you're right. I will say, I I think that it definitely is anothering factor, and it was smart, I think, because he said white passing, you know, they use the terminolo- right. terminology white passing. And I was like, I mean, at least Harper reads white to me, you know, I, yeah. I was like, that's, a, you know, I think there might be some discussion there, but at least there is sort of an awareness that they're not, they're not the same culturally, right. you know, and that's, I think that is an interest, that was a very interesting and important, important to establish at the jump, at the top. Yeah. Well, I think that's a great place to cut to my interview with Will Sharp, where we talked about that scene and several other things. Very charming guy. Let's hear that now. Well, I'm so thrilled to now to be on the line with one of the stars of The White Lotus Season 2, Will Sharp, who plays Ethan. Will, thanks for talking with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So I kind of want to, before we get into the nuts and bolts of who Ethan is and what's going on in this first episode, uh, I'm curious how you got involved in the show. Were you a big White Lotus Season 1 fan and kind of made it a mission to to do the next thing with Mike White, or how did it come about? I mean, I was a fan of the show um, and a fan of Mike White, but no, it wasn't, I mean, I didn't, I guess, dare even to imagine that I might be involved in the second season. Um, for me, it was just an email that came in asking to tape for it. Um, 
which I did. And then, you know, a couple of rounds later, I was very surprised uh, to to be a part of the second season. And I think I kind of just assumed it was some kind of um, terrible mistake <laughs> that they <they've> made. <laughs> but yeah, obviously very excited to be, you know, to have the opportunity to work with Mike and so many other brilliant people. And to be in this beautiful place in Sicily. Um, I'm, I'm curious what the what the filming was like. I mean, obviously, there were probably COVID restrictions and all that stuff. But uh-huh. it, it, I would imagine also, especially because you're mostly with these other three actors, it's the four of you in so many of your scenes. Um, yeah. What was that kind of intensity like, both being on location and, and in this little tightly knit quartet? I mean, I guess, you know, it was, as you say, like a sort of immersive acting experience in that we've all gone to a place that we wouldn't normally be in order to play characters who have gone on vacation to a place they wouldn't normally be. Um, and Taumina in Sicily, which is where we shot, you know, the majority of the show, is a sort of extraordinarily beautiful town. Um, and Mount Etna, the volcano, sort of looms quite large over it in a, I found, quite surreal way. I felt like I almost had to remind myself on a daily basis that that's not a hologram. Like, that really is. <laughs> yeah. A volcano um but yeah it meant that you know we had time to kind of get to know each other and to establish you know like a, a chemistry and it meant that you know whenever we were on set i think hopefully there was uh like a level of comfort and trust uh with one another that you know gave us a little bit of space to play if you know what i mean mm-hmm. yeah yeah no totally i mean i think atmosphere is such an important part of this show and you couldn't do much better than having Mount Etla looming over you, <laughs> you know, <laughs> this thing that has caused so much destruction over the millennia. Um, I was actually in Sicily with my family earlier this summer and um, oh, yeah. I I kept remarking to, to my mom and my boyfriend, I was like, it just looks like a cartoon <laughs> volcano. It's like pointy right. with like mist coming out of the top. Like it's, it's really yeah, something. Yeah. Um, also, like it would occasionally just erupt, right, and right. you know all the locals, and we'd be like, "Oh my god!" It's, and the locals would just be like, "Oh yeah, don't worry about that." Yeah. You know, it, it does that. It does that sometimes. <laughs> there is that sort of Sicilian "don't worry about that" attitude <laughs> in general. I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you you get involved with the show, and then you start to kind of dive into Ethan, and he's an interesting character in this first episode, where we know that he has come into very sudden wealth because he sold a company, right? And um, but he doesn't seem to be someone who has aspired to that. He seems like kind of a humble mm-hmm. guy. Is that how do you see him uh, on this initial first glimpse? I think that's fair. I think it's, he's also maybe someone who's almost I felt like sort of uncomfortable with his own success and almost like kind of uncomfortable maybe with his own ability or something. And there's a sense that he's sort of suppressing his suppressing his like competitive in- instincts or even you could say like his male instincts in a sort of stereotypical way so you uh, you do find him in a place where he sort of it feels like he's conflicted in some way and he's he's kind of holding a lot of stuff in um so he's quite sort of uh internal i think in in that first episode and sort of inscrutable i guess and and we get we get a sense of how he and Harper sort of found themselves in a place in their marriage where they, you know, they feel like they're honest with each other about everything and they tell themselves that this is a good relationship. But 
we do get the sense that there's something about it that has gone a little stale or something and that there's almost a kind of heaviness that they need to find a way to shake. Um, And perhaps sort of Ethan is less, uh, in the first instance, less sort of curious to confront those issues. Whereas Harper, I think, partly because, you know, we've, we've come on vacation with these two very different people, a very different couple in Cameron and Daphne, that seems to um, kind of make her question where, where we're at. Yeah, I mean, because one of the big questions that you have watching these scenes with the four of you together is like, why would they go on this trip? You know, like, <laughs> like, obviously, Cameron and Ethan have this connection because they were in school together, but but they, they do seem diametrically almost opposed to one another. So in your mind, like what, as far as we know, at this point in the, in the show, like, what was Ethan's reasoning for, for wanting to do this vacation? I think that's a good question. I honestly feel like he hasn't really thought it through properly. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, there's, uh, as you say, it's like him and Cameron are geographical friends. They just happen to share a room in college. And if it feels like they've sort of become friends in inverted commas by mistake. Uh, and in a similar way, it feels like they've ended up going on vacation together by mistake. Right. Um, and, um, you know, Harper has all these theories about like, is there, is Cameron sort of now that Ethan's so successful, is he trying to get something out of him um, in a business way? Um, but I think like, you know, maybe on a subconscious level, Ethan does have his own reasons for accepting the invitation beyond just like hey maybe like now we have this money it's okay for us to go on a big splashy holiday like this let's let's see how it goes you know just hang out with these people that they're a little different to us but they can be fun they're funny you know just like see the funny side of how different they are to us um that's certainly like the narrative that he's like telling himself i think it's like hey what's to lose we're going to a beautiful place and you know yeah and there's almost something maybe even experimental about it where he's like, well, this is kind of the world we're going to be in now that we're really rich. And so maybe we should test it out and uh, do, do that with someone I at least know a little bit right in. in yeah. In Cameron. Yeah. I think that's fair. Yeah. Do you have any sense in your head of, cause I don't correct me if I'm wrong, but we don't really find out what the company was that he sold. Do we? No, the sort of, the kind of, the tech side of it is very much off screen. Right. So I think, you know, we, he, he is carrying a sense of the pressure that that brings and how that has kind of uh, perhaps overtaken his time and his, and his life somewhat. Um, and maybe how he uses it as a kind of escape from his personal life. Um, and, but in terms of like what exactly like the technical aspect of that business was um, doesn't seem to be what Mike, is interested in. I think mm-hmm. he's more interested in just where where the couple are at. You know, where where are Ethan and Harper at in their relationship, and how is this vacation gonna, um, you know, change that? Yeah, I think certainly a less nuanced, subtle writer than Mike White would make potentially Ethan a kind of parody of that sort of tech bro uh, nerd mm-hmm. made good on you know some great idea. Um, and and yet we see little flashes of of that sort of personality type, let's say, in in a dinner scene where Cameron is saying, oh, he's the original incel. He's basically calling him like kind of a beta or whatever, you know, whatever the terminology yeah. is. How did you kind of consider that part of potential part of Ethan's character as you were kind of playing these scenes? 
Well, I mean, you know, as in sort of uh, somebody who's half Japanese, I, you know, and I checked in with Mike about this, you know, at the very beginning, and we were absolutely on the same page. I didn't want to fall into the traps of the sort of Asian nerd trope, right? Um, if you like. And so I really wanted to sort of bring a kind of uh, a mess to Ethan and a, and a darkness, actually. And uh, I guess, you know, just to make him sort of, complex and human and not kind of uh too um like overly consumed by like the mathematical aspects of his work if you know what i mean mm -hmm. and more just like here he is on vacation with his wife um he wants everything to be okay but as you say he's also sort of kind of taking shit from all sides uh, in this first episode and that kind of builds i guess as it goes on and there's a feeling of how, you know, when we first meet him, he's, I feel like that we know there's some kind of a fight in him. There's some kind of a fire in him, some kind of a drive because he's achieved all of this success, but he really is kind of burying that pretty deep at the beginning. Um, and so I guess like, uh, uh, you know, together with Mike, like I wanted to try and find a way to just give a sense that something is simmering here. And there is perhaps some kind of crisis, you know, whether it's his own crisis or a shared crisis with Harper or both is perhaps looming. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. just to give a sense that like he is carrying something, but he's just not ready to confront it yet or to make use of it. Um, I, I think he's trying to be decent. You know, he's, he's, he doesn't want to be yeah. like Cameron. He wants to sort of, yes, be successful but not wield that like a cudgel, you know, against other people. And I think that's a really interesting kind of shading. And I think that, you know, you, you brought up being half Japanese and, and, and there's a scene where, where Harper and Ethan are talking about like that they are maybe Cameron and Daphne's diverse friends because she's Puerto Rican. And, yes. you know, um, do you think the show is saying something about that kind of, it's not code switching exactly, but like the way that people of color like have to, sometimes feel they have to act in largely white spaces? I definitely think it affects the dynamic somewhat, you know, with Cameron and Daphne. And it maybe adds to the feelings that Ethan and Harper seem to have that they don't like fully belong in this sort of environment somehow. Um, but I guess, yeah, that in that scene, it's almost as much about just like, you know, to your question earlier, like, why have they invited us on this holiday? Like, what are they getting out of it? Are they just, do they just want to parade us around as their sort of like liberal minded friends who sort of look different to make them look better? Like, is it just like an exploitative invitation? Yeah. And there's also, I mean, you know, Mike White can be something of a satirist, I guess. And I, so you, you look at a ca uh -huh. characters like Harper and Ethan, who are the decent ones in, in, in the room when they're with Daphne and, and Cameron, certainly. Um, do you think what do you think the show is trying to say about like who Ethan is? Is there is there satire in there at all? Um, it's an interesting question. I think like honestly, I think what the show is saying through Ethan becomes clearer as the series goes right. on. And in the first instance, I think he's an enigma. He's an enigma, and he's kind of like a little bit abstract, and he's he's observing the other characters, um, but he's not. He's not sort of like rising to any challenges that are thrown at him yet. Um, and, you know, like with Cameron, it's almost like 
and I guess with just with his success generally, it's it's almost like he doesn't want to play the game. He, if he's going to win, he wants to win because he's good, like and because he's smart and because he can do it. He doesn't want to kind of play this strange uh, like personality content. Like he doesn't want he doesn't want to play that. He doesn't want to enter that competition, if you like. Yeah. Um, but yeah, at some point maybe he'll find that he he just has to, you know. It's funny. I, I've been on a kind of survivor binge lately, and I just actually started okay. watching the season that Mike is on. Um, right. And and hearing you talk about playing the game and stuff. Yeah. Like, I think r- what we know of Ethan right now, he's like in the first couple episodes of any given survivor season. He's the one who's kind of playing the quiet game, you know, observing uh-huh. and, and deciding maybe where he can kind of make his his move, I guess. Yeah. I, I mean, without, you know, giving too much away, it's almost like circumstances. You know, like my, I guess like he set up this really brilliant sort of matrix um, with these two couples where you have all the tensions to kind of play out within the partners, but also like across the partners. And you have like a great dynamic between um, Harper and Daphne and Ethan and Cameron as well. And so all of those tensions are going to build mm-hmm. and complicate. And I think when that starts to happen, that's when you see who Ethan really is i guess and um so yeah in the first instance he's trying to sort of almost protect himself from that maybe i don't know right um speaking of tensions there is a a one line that kind of caught me uh in that dinner scene uh where cameron is kind of talking about you know old the old college days and he never slept with girls or whatever and he's like but he's a good looking guy like i'd do him or something are we supposed to read anything into that like is there maybe a sexual tension between ethan and cameron (laughs) um i mean that's (laughs) up to you i guess really um yeah (laughs) um i i mean i guess like as ethan occasionally i ask myself the same question um but ultimately i don't i mean is it spoilery to say i don't think so Um, yeah <laughs> we can. I'll just go and write some fanfic, you know, after the after the season. So okay, <laughs> <for okay. her. laughs> Um, yeah. Obviously, we can, we are a little bit bound because we don't want to jump ahead uh, into further plot development. But I'm I'm curious about this shoot. You know, going back to the Sicily of it all, the, the the kind of cloistered environment that you were in. Like, were you able as a cast or just on your own to like enjoy your surroundings, or was it kind of all work all the time? No, it wasn't all work all the time, and there was definitely like fun to be had and I think we got you know pretty close as a cast um and you had time like because of the ensemble nature of the show you had time to kind of I guess reflect and meditate on the scenes coming up um which was unusual I guess for many of us um but it was also like you know we certainly like um my experience of it was that I wanted to take the work really seriously um and you know this season I think feels arguably a little darker than the first um its focus is to do with relationships I think and Mike's kind of diving headfirst into all of the messiest like gnarliest aspects of of love in a way and it's a you know there's a lot of dysfunction um but ultimately like I did think this was also like a strangely romantic series and I to speculate like it feels like it's quite a personal series to Mike and so in order to deliver that I felt like you know I needed to really invest in this character and and Aubrey and I as well also I guess just wanted to invest in that relationship as 
as much as we could. And so there was a degree of kind of, uh, you know, even, even when um, I was just sort of hanging out in Sicily, I felt like I was sort of trying to think about like, well, what's Ethan's experience of this? And it is a sort of like, you know, really stunning place. And I guess like something about like an expanse like that does put you in a, in a sort of existential mindset somehow. While you were doing this, because, you know, the way the show is constructed, there are some characters who move between uh, usually, you know, mostly the hotel employees between the sort of different pods of the story. Like, were you curious about yeah. what are, what's what's Michael Imperioli doing? What's what's F. Murray Abram up to? Like, how aware were you of wh- what the other pieces of this mosaic uh, were doing? I, I mean, yeah, I mean, there's occasional scenes where we're sort of in the same right. room, like a dinner setup or something. And that would always be. I guess, a treat to sort of see it across a room. And obviously we'd be, you know, trading stories from set and kind of like uh, keeping up with each other about how it was going. But honestly, like uh, one of the biggest sort of pleasures of watching the episodes that I have was seeing finally other characters' stories and how they were playing out and kind of, wow, all of this was going on, you know, at the same time. So, I mean, I think what's great about it is like how all of the different strands speak to each other thematically and so they do kind of like feed off each other i think in a really brilliant way but yeah the stories um don't really intersect um a great deal yeah maybe not physically but yeah certainly thematically everything feels um bound together exactly in in a fascinating way um yeah i mean i i i hope that our our listeners uh you know are enjoying the show as much as uh, i am um because there's a lot more with ethan to come um, sorry that we had to be so tantalizing about th- that stuff, but you know we look forward to spending more time with this. I like that you call him an enigma. I think that's a, a good description of of who this character <laughs> is, and and uh, we can invent for ourselves what you know how evil the tech company he created is, or maybe it's not evil at all. <laughs> I don't know. Sure. Um, but yeah. Um, yeah. In the meantime, Will, thank you so much for talking to us. I really appreciate your time, and and congrats on the series. It's really exciting, and uh, I think it's going to be big. Thank you. Thanks for having me. So one of the things I noticed about this season, I mean, maybe my memory of the first season is dim at this point, but like there's a lot more sort of body talk, kind of body humor. The grandpa yeah. Bert is farting. And then there's this awkward dinner scene uh, with a, talking about can an 80 year old man get an erection. Er, do you still get what hard erections? Sure. Like that. Really? I'll be. Do you still like jerk off? Doctors say you need to release once a day. Otherwise, you get backed up. Wait a second. Doctors say you need to jerk off That's once right. a day. That's right. Which doctors say that? You need to drain the sack. Was it? Was it? Were that? Was that kind of humor too much on this, or did did it, it feel okay? I you? mean, it struck me as <laughs> maybe not. Again, I don't know what conversations other people have with their grandparents. I, it's not something that I have ever really discussed at the dinner table but it it did strike me as sort of like boys dinner there it made sense in context for where i think we're going with all three of the the degrasso men right right yeah and and i think it only men would feel comfortable talking like that yes. at, at this fancy dinner maybe maybe not that's not true i mean the, the girls of sex and the city would be fine with oh that, yeah but, samantha yeah. would be, would be <laughs> yeah, all yeah. up in that charlotte would be have fainted by then but <laughs> um but yeah, no, I think it is. It it does definitely seem that that scene kind of crystallizes it for me that like 
this season is going to be a lot about sex, which will obviously we have sex workers involved now. Um, I am curious where Valentina comes in on that, you know, because last season, Murray Bartlett's character, who had a very graphic yes, very, sex yes. scene at the end of an episode. Absolutely. Um, he he really became something of not the moral center of the show, mm-hmm. but the kind of uh, audience surrogate of like right, not extraordinarily rich people who were just like he was losing his mind and we were sort of following him down the rabbit hole. Yeah. And does it feel like Valentina is going to be that this season? Well, I feel like they've and Mike White sort of shrewdly sort of made Valentina. I think I said this earlier, the anti Armand in that she seems really not very good at her job. At she all. says incredibly like blunt, rude things to guests. She calls Marie Abraham yeah. old. Yeah. I, I imagine that she'll factor in sort of more deeply. But right now it seems like she doesn't know what she's doing. No. But at the same time, I think that Armand in the first season who died. Yeah, who did, know, he did. He did um, ultimately die. Like he was murdered be- uh, partly because of this escalating fight that he had with Jake Lacey's character. Yeah. And I think that partly was born of the fact that like, Armand was good at his job. He was very obsequious with the guests, but yeah. maybe to a fault sometimes. Yes. He was a little smarmy. And so it's funny to see Valentina, like you said, the kind of anti-him, who doesn't have that tendency in her to be like, let me kiss these people's asses. And maybe that's an Italian yeah, thing. Maybe, I, yeah, maybe yeah. it is. I mean, it does. Yeah, it, it, it might literally be a cultural Italian thing. You know, I but I but I think <laughs> that in in that in this context, it's like good. These people yeah. shouldn't be like bowed down yes. to all the time, and I I like Val- Valentina for that. Absolutely, yeah. I mean, she didn't say anything that was not true. Right, she was, right. She was maybe honest to a fault in a way that you don't normally see for service industry people. Yeah, but I do. I wonder. I guess to sort of circle back to sort of the overarching question in terms of we guess we know that Valentina makes it to the end of the show. We know that Valentina and Daphne and the two survivor girlies yes, and then, yes, <laughs> who and just got two. there are, they're the only ones we know are okay. And yeah. her employee, I guess. And her, yes, yeah. and her employee, yeah. Rocco, Rocco, who, yeah. who seemed nice. Do you have any sort of like initial sort of thoughts or sort of like speculation in terms of who might make it, who might not? Or is it too soon well, to tell? It might be too I, no, soon to no. Tell. I mean, I think it's fun to think about it, and we should probably plan to kind of do a little check-in at the end of each of these <laughs> episodes and sort of um, change our theories or stick to our theories. Armin's death in the last season was sad. Yes, it was And sad. I wasn't expecting a sad death. I was kind of expecting a funny one. Mm-hmm. And so that kind of changed my predictive model for this show. I think, obviously, that first season, the point of Armin's death was to illustrate, well, to bookend, the first episode where this pregnant woman gives birth at the hotel at this employee mm-hmm. and then is never seen again. Yes. And then midway through the season, a cute surfer guy uh, who works at the hotel, yes. he Yo. gets dismissed. He gets for, dismissed. Yeah. Um, so my, White was saying, like, these people are are shuffled in and out of existence mm-hmm. uh, while these rich people just don't care at all. Yeah. So. Is he going to make that point again? It doesn't seem so because we know that our hotel employees are alive. (laughs) So um, I would worry, I think, about our friends Mia and Lucia. That's who I'm worried about. That's who you're worried about. Okay, so that's so interesting because I would be worried about Jennifer Coolidge. I, I, you know, I from just like a filmmaking from a TV making point of view, um, she's the only one who made it from the last season into this season. Um, we were just discussing, like, is it diminishing returns? Is there much more? How much more of Tanya's story do we have to tell? And I don't think Mike White is sort of making artistic decisions based on, you know, Emmys and, you know, things like that. But I think it could be pretty incredible, really sad, really shocking to lose 
Jennifer. Yeah. Well, and her husband doesn't seem to like her that very much. So that's just something. Something is uh, amiss there. Certainly, sinister things do seem to follow Tanya. Yes. So, yes. So maybe maybe her time is up, despite um, her best effort. Yeah, uh, that would be that would be shocking. I mean, the funny thing you mentioning like potential future seasons when they announced this season, I was like, oh, no, they shouldn't. Why would you ruin? <laughs> don't big littleize it. Like, yeah. don't. <laughs> and then the, like maybe 10 minutes into this episode, I was like, oh, no, keep doing it forever. I, I want more hotels across the world. Like and just yeah. the, I mean, yes, I, I, I also had the same initial reaction. But then even when the theme song started and the news sort of like interpolated, like, Italian club remix of the first theme song. Yeah. Like when the beat yeah. dropped, I was like, "Oh, this is it's... fantastic! I I need this escape." Even though it shows us, and I think that's something that Mike White does so wonderfully is that he sort of exposes sort of the horrors of this sort of like privileged underbelly and sort of all of the dysfunction and all of these sort of problems with society, while mm-hmm. also providing a bit of escapism. It's a oh, little bit of fun. It's a little 100%. sexy. It's a little. It's. I was like, "Oh, I need to go. I I got to go back to Italy." Oh, absolutely. And I think that that in itself is its own sort of, uh, you know, design and that he's like, this stuff is attractive. It's alluring. Yeah. And that's part of what makes it so insidious, you yeah. know. And um, so he both satisfies like, I mean, I could look at like the, the lush chairs in their rooms for like an hour. Just, <laughs> you know, Just like, the umbrellas at yeah. the hotel. Oh, when I saw I was like, oh, my God. Yeah. Yeah. Was, yeah. Oh, to die. Literally to die for. Yeah. Uh, well, we'll see who dies. <laughs> um, that's going to do it for this week's episode. Um, you can email us, by the way, if you have questions, theories about who's dead, anything like that. Um, we're at stillwatchingpod at gmail.com. Or you can come bother us sort of in person on Twitter. Oh, 100%. <laughs> Chris, where, where are you on Twitter? You can find me at Christress um, on Twitter and Instagram. And you're writing for VF.com. And I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm writing for VF.com every Chris day. Does great things you should always read, especially when they send you somewhere. Yeah. Those are always good pieces. Oh, oh yeah. my God. That's so, yeah. oh my God, they should yeah. send me I'm to White I'm just trying to get you sent more places. <laughs> I, yeah. Send me to the White you know, Lotus in Sicily. Should. We should do the final episode of this podcast from Sicily. From there. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> yes. On location. We yeah. should absolutely be. We, yes, that will be great for everybody. I think we have the budget for that. <laughs> oh, yeah, they, they've yeah. got it. Condé Nets. Yeah. All right. Well, this has been Still Watching from Vanity Fair. Our editor and producer is Dave Gonzalez. And we had production help from Peyton Hayes and Katie Rich. We had technical assistance from Jennifer Nelson. Stephen Valentino is our executive producer, and our theme music is by Alexis Quadrado. We'll be back next week for episode two. Looking forward to seeing you then.